0: Fund in the 215 on five in my basement, shang on my vine. Welcome to the Rosenbach Podcast. I'm Alex Ames, and this is Season 1, Books and Bitters, Adventures in Book Collecting, in which we explore the stories behind fascinating objects in the Rosenbach's collection and engage in critical conversations about the place of rare books, libraries, and museums in modern-day life. This episode is the maiden voyage of a four-part exploration of one of the Rosenbach's most iconic and heartbreaking stories, our institution's connection to the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Tragedy can sometimes lead to new opportunities. This was certainly the case for rare book dealer Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach, who lost a dear friend and important customer when the Titanic sank in April 1912. While the death of Dr. Rosenbach's friend and client, Harry Elkins-Widener, was a personal and professional loss for the up-and-coming bookseller, the tragedy also set into motion a series of events and opportunities that turbocharged Dr. Rosenbach's already growing reputation as a leading figure in his field. Today, the Rosenbach's collections include rare books and documents that shed light on Dr. Rosenbach's connection to the Elkins and Widener families of Philadelphia, the chaos surrounding the sinking of the Titanic, and how Dr. Rosenbach's relationship with Harry Elkins Widener's mother, Eleanor, changed his life forever. In coming episodes of the Rosenbach podcast, we'll dive into specific elements of the Rosenbach's Titanic story, including the construction of the Harry Elkins-Widener Memorial Library at Harvard University and Harry's book buying at the London bookshop of Bernard Alfred Quaritch shortly before Harry's death. In this first Titanic episode, I'd like to introduce you to the basics of the story and to share some of the books and documents in our collection that relate to Dr. Rosenbach's Titanic experience. I'm sitting in the reading room at the Rosenbach with Judy Gustin, our curator and director of collections, who has pulled some items for us to view together as she talks us through the Titanic story. You previously met Judy in episode two of the podcast, in which she told us about the history of the Rosenbach and the kinds of collections we hold here. It's wonderful to be back with you, Judy, for another episode of the Rosenbach podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Alex. It's great to be back.
0: Judy, before we turn to some of the artifacts you've pulled for us to consider, let's start out by setting the stage for what happened next. Can you tell me a bit about who Philip and Dr. ASW Rosenbach were? Around the time of the sinking of the Titanic on April 15, 1912, how was their antique and rare book business doing?
1: Well, Alex, um, I think I'll start quite early in their lives to give you a sense of who they were and who they were to each other. Um, Born in 1876, um, ASW, or Abraham Simon Wolf Rosenbach, was the youngest of eight children in the family. Um, it was an, a half-immigrant uh, family on the father's side, and their mother was the descendant of a very um, early Jewish family in Pennsylvania. He, ASW, was the only child to receive a college and graduate education um, because of their financial circumstances, so they all saved all their money to make this happen. He was a promising uh, young man. Philip Rosenbach, 13 years older than his younger brother Abe, was a father figure to him after the deaths of, some, of, of their father and some of their older male siblings and he tried many careers um before he and his younger brother began the Rosenbach company around the um the time of, of the change from the 19th to the 20th centuries I should note that ASW um, was very much guided by his maternal uncle, Moses Pollack, the earliest uh, rare book dealer in Philadelphia and possibly in the United States. Um, since his childhood, he began working at his shop when he was about nine um, and started his book buying career even at that young age. As he went through graduate school, um, his scholarship surrounded um, literature. Um, and his Ph.D. dissertation at University of Pennsylvania was based on the relationship between um, English and Spanish Golden Age literature. And um, what's interesting about their fledgling book business is that Moses Pollock, came into play again in that when, when Pollock died, the Rosenbach Company in 1904 bought mo- most of Uncle Mo's inventory, but still um, a fledgling business when they began to sell um, uh, some, of those, um, some of their stock to Harry Widener and his family, the Elkinses and the Widener families.
0: So tell me more about these Elkins and Widener families. Who were they? What kind of relationship did Dr. Rosenbach establish with them over the years?
1: Well, um, the Elkinses and Wideners also have uh, quite a history here in the Philadelphia area. Harry Elkins Widener's father, George Widener, was a Philadelphian. Um, He, too, the son of wealthy parents, um, his father, P.A.B. Widener, uh, founded uh, a streetcar business, which is the precursor of Philadelphia's uh, mass transit today, as well as U.S. Steel. Um, and he also had tobacco interests. Um, So you can imagine the kind of wealth that that family amassed. Um, At uh, George's death, um, he was worth uh, tens of billions in today's dollars. Um, So, uh, you know, one of the most wealthy people in the United States at the time. So they all had philanthropic interests, um, and um, Eleanor Elkins Widener, herself um, a descendant from a very wealthy family, also had philanthropic interests. Um, And um, she, um, as we'll see, um, turned from um, being the the wife of a wealthy man and the mother of another wealthy man into a a much more adventurous woman later in her life. So she's a fascinating character in in herself.
0: So tell me a little bit more about one of the central characters of our story, Harry Elkins Widener. Who was he, and why do you think he was so special to Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach?
1: So Harry um, was, as I was saying, uh, uh, the son of uber-wealthy families, Um, and he was born in 1885. So he's just a couple of years younger than uh, Dr. Rosenbach. Harry entered Harvard in 1903 and met Dr. Rosenbach only two years later in 1905. Dr. Rosenbach visited the Widener family the the next year, in 1906, and the result of that visit was a sale of three Shakespeare folios to the family. Um, So you can already see that Dr. Rosenbach has a certain skill of salesmanship, but also really was able to bring himself into this family. Um, Harry was a budding bibliophile uh, when Dr. Rosenbach and he met, um, and he offered Dr. R. The opportunity to mentor someone and also have access to wealthy people um, who like to collect, um, so it really worked for him in two ways. Um, they spent fifty thousand dollars in the first two years that Doctor R knew the the Widener family, and um, the average family in the United States at that time earned five hundred dollars a year. So fifty thousand dollars in purchases versus an average person's income of $500 a year. And that was only in two years that they spent that $50,000. So you can see how important this family became to the growth of the Rosenbach company. So um, in 1907, Harry had his own book plate made. And we have one um, that's signed to Philip Rosenbach here in the collections. And if you look at it, what you see is that the image on it is kind of frighteningly um, prophetic. A young woman, uh, perhaps an image of his mother, who knows, um, sits by what looks like a ship's porthole with an image of the world map just outside of it, um, perhaps signifying travel by sea. Um, So this is um, an interesting um, sort of display of both his interest in collecting books in which he would put his own personal book plate, but also, um, you know, maybe his thoughts about the future, um, traveling to buy books.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the sinking of the Titanic. How do the Wideners end up on board the vessel, and what documents do we have in our collection here at the Rosenbach that show how the Rosenbach brothers communicated around the time of the sinking?
1: So Harry and his parents, um, so that includes his dad, his mom, his dad's butler, and his mom's maid. So it was a, a nice little group. Um, we're in Europe on a buying trip, um, all of them collecting what their interests were. Um, they boarded the Titanic in France for the trip home. Uh, The documents we have here are many um, regarding this whole incident, Um, but the ones that give you the most sort of immediate and emotional sense of how people came to know what happened um, are a series of telegrams and letters that we have um, and, you know, that sort of describe the timeline from the incident on the Titanic, to how people both in Europe and America learned about it, um, and in particular, how the immediate circle around Harry Widener uh, learned of this disaster and his death.
0: So can we look at some of them together? I see that you have some archival folders pulled, and I would love to take a peek at what you have to share.
1: Absolutely. So what I'd like people to, to know about are these um, documents right here. Let me just lay out the landscape for you. At the time of the sinking of the Titanic, which, um, as you probably know, was April 1912, Harry was in Europe. Um, Dr. Rosenbach had previously sent a letter of introduction to his friend, another book dealer in London, uh, Bernard Corridge um, to show Harry around and give him the best treatment possible when he was there on site. Um, Philip Rosenbach was here at home in Philadelphia, and ASW Rosenbach was in New York in New York at a major uh, book sale called the Ho Sale. Um, he had been given a list of things by the Widener family to purchase, most uh, pertinently uh, Harry to complete his uh, giant wish list, um, and so he was in New York. So here we have the three characters involved in this correspondence: Bernard Quaritch, London; ASW, New York; Philip. Philadelphia. So what I'd like to share with you here is um, from the moment that things were, um, were first uh, known, ASW um, hears from Philip, who's here in Philadelphia, and he's in New York at the Waldorf Astoria. And um, this telegram's text reads, write Corridge tonight results of two days bid. So he's instructing his brother um, to write to Korich about what's been going on in New York. Um, and mailing his new bids. No further news of Harry or George Widener, Mrs. and Maid safe. Will Telephone uh, 12 tomorrow have Stetson results ready? So they're both talking about business, and sandwiched in there is an indication that they've heard the news of the sinking of the Titanic. Um, this is dated April
0: sixteenth, 1912. And so what we're looking at here is a carbon copy of the telegram that yes. was sent...
1: That was sent by Philip to his brother. Right. Okay. Um, likewise, we have another undated telegram, um, and it's un- it's unclear whether this telegram came from um, uh, from Doctor Rosenbach. Oh no, sorry from from Korich in London to Doctor Rosenbach um, then in New York um, before or after what you've just heard. Um, but it says Harry Widener and father lost Titanic. Mrs. Saved. Um, And so there was knowledge of what was going on also in London, and they're able to correspond back and forth by telegram, which was the only way of communicating across the ocean um, at that time. But it was a relatively immediate way of of communicating with each other.
0: So this telegram essentially represents the moment that that this news was known.
1: Right. And and keep in mind, too, yes. And, And keep in mind, too, that... We know retrospectively um, that um, George Widener's body was found um, and Harry's never was, so um, this knowledge that they were somehow lost was known to Quaritch. One of the things that's really important to note is that although it was clear that Eleanor and her maid were saved, um, they got onto one of the lifeboats and got onto a ship that came to rescue the victims of the Titanic. She did not know what had happened to her husband and her son until she returned home. Um, and she just thought they got onto another lifeboat. And so she did not have this knowledge until she returned home and got off the ship um, here in Philadelphia and was um, was told at that moment Um, of the fates of her husband and son. So she lived for a short amount of time under this illusion that perhaps they had been saved as well.
0: Had she convinced herself of that fact, or was she in a state of profound anxiety? Is that known?
1: Well, what is known is that Dr. Rosenbach, having heard this news, um, went to the family home uh, when Eleanor returned home, um, both of them in a state of despair. Um, over the loss of Harry. Um, And um, so the the only thing that we really know there is what happened after she got home with Dr. Rosenbach's appearance on the scene. One more uh, letter that I'd like to read from the time immediately following the sinking of the Titanic um, is from Bernard Korich uh, to Dr. Rosenbach, whom he calls Dear Doctor. Um, And he said, thank you for your report of the first day of the sale. This would be the wholesale. Um, It is very sad about the Wideners. I saw that some of the bodies were being recovered, so I cabled Philip that Harry W. had the second edition of Bacon's essays, which he told us he was going to keep in his pocket. I thought that possibly might be useful for identification. So this is kind of an important letter because it it sets up some of the conversation that I hope we'll have um, right now. Um, about um, how Harry's experience in London, um, particularly with Bernard Quaritch, colors the interpretation of this episode from then on.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So with this letter, we have the establishment of this association between Harry Elkins-Widener and this copy of Bacon's essays. And this is just a, a cold, hard fact that... Quaritch is reporting yes. for a practical purpose. Exactly. What happens with this little thread of a narrative from this point forward, moving forward from this letter?
1: Well, it's just going to kind of explode, right? Um, we have in our collection um, a uh, recently acquired Bacon's Essays, the same edition that Harry bought from Quaritch. Ours is a little thicker than his would have been um, because it's bound together with another work, but when you open it, you can see the, um, the the number of pages in the volume that Harry would have bought, um, and it's very slim. I would say it's probably less than half an inch thick. Um, and the whole book itself is only about, you know, maybe five inches by about three inches. It's very tiny. Mm-hmm. You can see why something like this um, that Harry really... Uh, Sought to purchase, um, devotedly, uh, once he found it, that he would want to have what he called the little bacon, um, uh, which was very tiny, um, in his, in his pocket, um, rather than what normally would be done with the purchases made in London. They would all be crated up and they would be sent back home to Harry, um, on a boat, not necessarily the boat that he was going on, but just once they were able to get them shipped, they would send them on. So for something this small, putting it on your person would probably be the most expedient way to get it home with you. And Quaritch notes that he he took it in his pocket and and that if in fact a body was found with this book in in the pocket, um, this would be a positive identification um, of Harry. However, the stories surrounding what Harry did and said when he acquired this book will start to become part of the mythology of book collecting, so we have a number of other objects um, that reflect the genesis of this mythology, essentially making Harry this young, promising, avid bibliophile, making him almost a martyr to the collecting of books. Um, it's a little shocking when you think about that that people look at an episode as tragic as this and sort of build up these stories. But he was someone who was enormously loved, and. On his death, enormously grieved by all of those in the book business, in the book collecting world, um, and to those closest to him. So it's in some ways not a surprise that grief would lead them to sort of tell stories, to create memories around, around Harry's existence and life. Um, and as with all of us, you know, stories um, sort of mutate through time um, and maybe become something else. And that's exactly what's happened here. So if you'll give me a moment while I pull out some of these materials, um, the ones that we have in the collection um, come from uh, people you've, you've met before, obviously Korich, with the quote that I noted last that it was going to be identification, this book was going to be identification um, in, his, um, in his pocket but also um, such notable bibliophiles um, as A. Edward Newton, um, who wrote a recollection of an incident in his book, The Amenities of Book Collecting, um, in 1918. And it's a rather lengthy story, um, but basically it traces um, a time when he and Harry were together in New York during the first wholesale, um, when he had a conversation with Harry um, and he says that um, he's often returned to this um, conversation since the events of the Titanic, Um, they had dined together and, um, they were, Harry suggested that, um, they go to the theater together. So I want to read you a section in A. Edward Newton's The Amenities of Book Collecting, um, from 1918 in which he recalls a conversation with Harry, um, that in light of the events of the Titanic, he recalled, uh, again and again. Um, and here's, here's the section. It was one night when we were in New York together during the first wholesale that I had a conversation with Harry, to which in light of the subsequent events, I have often recurred. We had dined together at my club and had gone to the sale, but there was nothing of special interest coming up, and after a half hour or so, he suggested that we go to the theater. In a few moments, we were witnessing a very different performance from the one we had left in the Anderson auction rooms. But the performance was a poor one. Harry was restless and finally suggested that we take a walk on Fifth Avenue. During this walk, he confessed to me his longing to be identified and remembered in connection with some great library. He expanded this idea at length. He said, quote, I do not wish to be remembered merely as a collector of a few books, however fine they may be. I want to be remembered in connection with a great library, and I do not see how it is going to be brought about. Mr. Huntington and Mr. Morgan are buying up all the books, and Mr. Bixby is getting the manuscripts. When my time comes, if it ever does, there will be nothing left for me. Everything will be gone. We spent the night together, and after I had gone to bed, he came to my room again and called me by a nickname and said, I have got to do something in connection with the books to make myself remembered. What shall it be? I laughingly suggested that he write one, but he said it was no jesting matter. Then it came out that he thought he would establish a chair at Harvard for the study of bibliography in all its branches. He was much disturbed by the lack of interest which great scholars frequently evince towards his favorite subject. When he returned to his own room and I went to sleep, but I have often thought of this conversation since, I with the rest of the world learned that his mother was prepared in his memory to erect the great building at Harvard, which is his monument. His ambition has been achieved associated with books his name will ever be. The great library at Harvard is his memorial. In its sanctum sanctorum, his collection will find a fitting place. Alas, Harry had bought his last book. It was an excessively rare copy of Bacon's essays, the edition of 1598, Korich had secured it for him at the Hooth sale, and he dropped in at Korich's London shop to say goodbye and give his final instructions for the disposition of his purchases. He said, quote, I think I'll take that little bacon with me in my pocket, and if I am shipwrecked, it will go with me. And I know that it was so. In all the history of book collecting, this is the most touching story. So that's Newton's sort of recitation of Um, an expanded version of what Korich had earlier written, that he just took it in his pocket with him. And now he says he took it with him in his pocket in case he was shipwrecked, which seems like very prophetic, right? Um, So there's another um, memorial version of this story that ASW Rosenbach published in Harry Elkin's Widener's Memory in 1912, right after the incident. And he writes about Harry he desired to gather 100 of the greatest books in English literature and use the Grolier Club list as a guide. He had hoped at the sale of the Ho and Hooth libraries to fill some of the gaps and had given his bids while in London for the Hooth books and was hurrying back for the third portion of the Ho sale when death overcame him. And we now come to the most touching, most pathetic, with all the most glorious incident in the romance of book collecting." No story could be more tender. History furnishes no example of devotion more striking. He had purchased from Mr. Quaritch a rare second edition of Bacon's Essays from 1598, of which only a few copies are extant. He said he would take it with him, as he did not want to trust it with the other volumes that he had bought. He would keep it in his dispatch box, with which he always traveled. Just before the Titanic sank, he said to his mother, And this is a quote. Mother, I have placed the volume in my pocket. Little bacon goes with me. Dr. Rosenbach continues, this is surely the finest anecdote in the whole history of books. The name of Harry Elkins Widener will be recalled whenever books are mentioned. The building at Harvard shall stand as a monument to him. The library that he formed with such loving care and devotion shall remain in accordance with his desire forever at the service of the scholar and the student. So that was Dr. R.'s view in 1912. Another thing I'd like to share with you is a book that Dr. Rosenbach was asked to write a foreword for, and it is a publication of that very book that that Harry put in his pocket, Bacon's Essays, um, that happens um, later on. This um, is in the 1940s. So this book was published in 1944. And in Dr. Rosenbach's uh, introductory material, um, he uh, writes about uh, this incident that we've been talking about. So um, first, he talks a little bit about the publication of the book. Um, we, at the time, Harry bought The Little Bacon. It was deemed to be a first edition. It was later discovered after his death that there was, in fact, um, Uh, There were two uh, copies of what was truly the first edition, making the 1598, still rare, but a second edition at that, but it is the version we have here at the Rosenbach um, in memory of this incident. Um, So um, Dr. Rosenbach says um, um, there was a very romantic story connected with the Huth copy of this issue. I bought it at the Hooth sale in London, November 17, 1912, for my dear friend, Harry Elkins Widener, who, if he had lived, would have been, I believe, the greatest collector the world has ever known. After the Hooth sale, young Widener slipped the volume into his pocket and, returning to a friend, said, I think I'll take that little bacon with me in my pocket, and if I'm shipwrecked, it will go down with me. With what prophecy he spoke, they little knew." A few days later, he was one of the victims of the Titanic disaster. Now, for those of you who are listening carefully, um, there's a couple things going on here. Dr. Rosenbach did not buy this volume uh, for him. Actually, Harry bought it in London at Korich's shop. Um, the other thing that's wrong here is he states the date of the purchase of the volume that he did not make as November seventeenth, 1912. Um, and most of you know that the Titanic sank in April of 1912. So by that date, Harry was already dead. Um, so um, it's unclear whether Dr. Rosenbach thinks that he bought something at the hoof sale, but that was in London. He put all orders through to Corrich, but Korich already had a copy that he sold to Harry, previous to Harry's uh, embarking on the Titanic. So um, it's very interesting that he still repeats the, uh, the last two claims that Harry put the bacon in his pocket and that he put it in his pocket in case he would be shipwrecked after that and that this was a prophetic uh, pronouncement on Harry's part. Um, but in fact, he has all of the other facts incorrect as of 1944. So it stands to, to reason that over time, some of the details like dates and purchases might have melded together over the course of his amazing career. But um, nonetheless, he still deems it um, necessary to include this notion that Harry put the bacon in his pocket um, and essentially uh, he and the bacon went down with the ship. Um, and so um, it sort of befits the kind of mythology that's growing or that had grown around Harry um, and how emotional um, these book collectors and dealers are about about Harry and his, um, his prospects um, as a young man in book collecting at that time and what kind of a life was
0: cut short. Judy, do you think it's going out too far on a limb to suggest that Part, maybe part of the reason Dr. Rosenbach's perspectives or memories on this incident had become so addled was I'd imagine he was replaying this whole crisis again and again in his own mind and trying to make sense of it, trying to draw meaning from it because he himself was experiencing deep grief at Harry's death. Do you think that could explain part of the you know, confusion here? Oh.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, I'm not um, uh, in any way an expert on grieving. We have an
0: episode for that coming up. And (laughs) I
1: understand you have an episode for that coming up, and I'd be interested in hearing um, exactly what these experts do think about this kind of behavior. But keep in mind, um, there were two people involved here, Harry's mom, Mm -hmm. Eleanor Elkins-Widener, and Dr. Rosenbach, his friend, mentor, and book dealer. Um, a very close relationship. Um, we may not know that today, but at the time, they were, you know, kind of two peas in a pod. And so, and and Harry relied on Dr. Rosenbach for the kind of advice about building this collection that he had imagined someday would be part of a great library. He didn't know how soon that would be. Unfortunately, Dr. Rosenbach ran to the to the uh, Widener family home upon Eleanor Elkins Widener's return, and the two of them were in terrible grief, and so. That grief did turn into a plan, and um, as we'll see, the plan very closely followed what Harry said he wanted for himself, which was to become known through a great library. So I think that there was, at this early period, a channeling of that grief into a project of, for these two, Eleanor and Dr. R., um, to build this library in Harry's memory and to continue buying the books on his wish list that would fill it. Um, So it gave both of them uh, a tremendous project to sink their energies into to alleviate themselves of some of the grief um, that they felt for the loss of this person
0: that they loved so much. Before we move on to talk specifically about that process Mm -hmm. of building this great library, I would love to dwell a bit longer on these stories that you shared with Mm -hmm. us, and particularly the A. Edward Newton Mm -hmm. recollection, which, I mean it's so important to remember Harry was in his mid-twenties when this happened, a fresh college graduate, and, you know, according to Newton, we are to believe that Harry is walking around New York trying to dream up a way to be associated with a great library. I mean, how much of this myth do you think is actually true? Do you think it would have been I mean, maybe it was realistic to imagine that a young man like him would be looking at people like J.P. Morgan and Huntington and thinking, sure, I want to be that when I grow up. I mean, how, how do you parse out the details here about what is probably true, what might be embellishment?
1: So here's my guess. Um, Newton is writing that account after the project of building the library has started. Um, so he's informed slightly by that. Um, and maybe he's thinking back to this conversation that he and Harry had, and Harry might have said something like what's quoted there, which is that he really wants to be this great collector, but, you know, by the time he reaches his prime, you know, the point where you're really able to do something, and don't forget, the Wideners are very philanthropic. So by the time you could get to the point where Huntington um, was and where everybody else who in that period decided that they had this great collection, they would make a library in their name to, you know, put those books out um, in public view. Um, so Harry may have been saying something about, you know, I wish I were, you know, of the status of the people now like Huntington and Morgan and others who are at that point where they've collected enough to finally make a home. For all of these books that's available for people to use. Um, so there may have been some part of that conversation, but, um, and it doesn't seem unreasonable that Harry would feel like, you know, what's going to be left for me to collect? I'm so young. But I, you know, I find it hard to believe that Harry was so prophetic in all of these respects that these people are, are suggesting. He had no reason in the world. Um, to think that um, his death would come so soon, um, and uh, nor did anyone on the Titanic uh, really. Um, but um, but Harry, you know, had everything in his favor, um, and you know he he had all the money to spend. He had a life ahead of him. Um, you know, he had health and wealth and a, a supportive family. Um, so these accounts are sort of have built into them the sort of almost you know morose kind of detail um that seems like it just wouldn't have been in Harry's nature um to uh you know when one collects in this way one's always looking towards the future what's out there, what's next, um, you know, what's on the horizon, what might become available. Um and it doesn't seem like he would have departed from that conversation to say, you know, if I die tomorrow, um this is this is what I'd like to happen. So um I think it's a combination in, in Newton's mind of having already heard what's underway to suddenly just sort of placing it in his account of his conversation with Harry.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, it it can seem so unrealistic to us today looking back to imagine a very young man having those sorts of visions, but then again, he was surrounded by people of his own class and aspirationally even of a higher level who were... Creating libraries like this, immortalizing their names in, in that way, so I guess in that regard sure why not you yeah. know see himself in that way
1: yeah I mean there was no reason not to talk about what you imagined your eventual future to be um, mm-hmm. you know he may have been worried that there wouldn't be enough to collect um, but as we know from the present there's still ample material to collect um, so it, it might have just been a little bit of drama um, but um, really no reason um, to to think that Harry foresaw his own death. I mean, we look at his book plate and we think maybe that's prophetic. But, you know, all of these things might come from other, um, you know, other urges to, you know, he wants to travel the world and the way you did it then was by sea. Um, he didn't, like, have a picture of the Titanic on his on his, um, on his book plate.
0: Or a tiny little iceberg. Floating or an in iceberg, North Atlantic. Right. right.
1: So, you know, he's not um, he's not really the prophet of his own doom. He really is just you know, collecting in the manner that someone his age and class would have, been, would have been thinking towards collecting.
0: Fascinating. So now let's talk more about the relationship forged by Eleanor Elkins and Dr. Rosenbach in the aftermath of all of this. And as you have already indicated, the plan that they developed, which resulted in precisely the, the kind of collection and the kind of library that would have made Harry proud.
1: Right, so Dr. Rosenbach, um when he and Eleanor Elkins Wider came up with this plan, I mean basically she came up with the plan to donate this um library to um Harry's alma mater, Harvard, and um the two of them set forth um in in somewhat in two different directions, but um Dr. Rosenbach was involved in the planning of the library as well. But his main goal at that point was to complete Harry's wish list. And he was given um, a, a huge amount of money to make that happen. Keep in mind what we've said about where the Rosenbach business was when he first met Harry. Um, it was a fledgling business, and he started to make his money um, in part due to the large expenditures of the Widener family. But by 1912, Dr. Rosenbach's business was still starting up. Getting this influx of cash from uh, Mrs. Widener to go out there, um, you know, mostly to auctions um, and have a presence collecting in Harry's name, um, was really what got his career into full gear. So much as Harry um, had made references um, that Newton references in his own book uh, when he recalls their conversation together about who else is collecting right then, um, and Harry reels off the names of some of the biggest collectors. Well, they're still collecting, and they are seeing Dr. Rosenbach in the auction room bidding up um, to get um, these books for Harry because it's what Harry wanted and because he had the money to do it from the Weidner family. So he gets um, all of this display time in front of the wealthiest collectors in the field. And um, he was impressive. So it's not long before he starts to get their business too. So this episode in itself, despite the sadness of it um, for Harry and his family, um, and despite the grief that Dr. Rosenbach, the grief that sort of motivates Dr. Rosenbach and Harry's mother, Eleanor Elkins Widener, um, it is Dr. Rosenbach's entree into the, the larger um, and wealthier world um, that he was seeking. Um, and he was able to trans- transform his business um, basically overnight um, because of this episode.
0: So in a sort of macabre way, the sinking of the Titanic and the process of, of grieving and philanthropy that Eleanor Elkins Widener undertook proved to be a stepping stone to greatness for Dr. Rosenbach, but it also had a tremendous cost for Dr. Rosenbach in terms of the loss of one of his good friends, dearest confidants. How do you, from our historical source materials that we have here on site, what can we glean about how Dr. Rosenbach engaged with this personal sense of loss?
1: You know, it's hard to know, and again, you know, I will um, allow the the experts in grieving to comment on this kind of of behavior. Um, He maintained his relationship with the Widener family um, even after the big project building the library at Harvard was done, Um, and he would not only continue to sell to them, but he also, um, on at least one occasion that we know of, Um, asked for a loan of money um, to keep himself in in, in shop stock. And uh, he used this incident, according to the recollections of it, as a way to urge the Wideners to give him the money he sought by saying that Harry's ghost encouraged him to seek out their assistance. So um, it's hard to know whether Dr. Rosenbach feels that he is still living with Harry's ghost, and in fact, what he was reporting was true, or whether he was manipulating them by mentioning um, this, um, that Harry was somehow you know, wanting this transaction to occur. So it's really hard to figure this out, and I would love for experts to comment on this because I... I don't know how to take it, but here at the Rosenbach, um, we do continue to um, refer to this episode, The Sinking of the Titanic and the Loss of Harry Widener and the building of his memorial library, as one of the sort of foundational stories of um, the Rosenbach Company and therefore of the Rosenbach as it has become today. Um, There, you know, you have to ask yourself, without this incident, without um, his immediate, um, you know, move on to be the, the builder of the collections of people like Huntington and Folger, um, to some extent Morgan, um, and others, um, you know, what would have happened? Um, you know, would he have been having to seek out the next uh, wealthy family to supply books to? Um, you know, what, what would the outcome of that have been? Um, and, you know, we look back at this incident as, as that turning point.
0: So in our archives, we have letters from Dr. Rosenbach saying, Harry's ghost is urging me in this, to ask you this question or ask you for this favor.
1: This was, um, from my knowledge, um, a transaction that occurred in person. Okay. Um, and so it's just a story that's repeated um, in the Rosenbach lore. Mm-hmm. But in a way, it fits in a little bit with what we're seeing in terms of building a mythology around mm-hmm. Harry. Um, and also in the extreme sense of grief um, that was felt both by Harry's mother um, and Dr. Rosenbach, who spent so much time together trying to resolve their grief by a building a massive building and a massive collection of books.
0: And so in our materials here, there is some continuation post-completion of the library at Harvard of correspondence between the family the and financial records, for sales and all that, so yes, we yes. have more of a continuum than just this window into the exactly, exactly.
1: Their relationship continues on. We see the sales. Um, uh, Eleanor Elkins Widener um, still keeps Harry's room at the house stocked with presents for him at Christmas time, um, and um, you know it's a it's a very sad tale. Um, but it really does go to show that the relationship um, between Dr. Rosenbach and uh, particularly Eleanor uh, Widener um, is is something that um, uh, sort of exercises itself over a long period of time.
0: Fascinating. Anything else you'd like to add?
1: Thanks for asking, Alex. Um, I think that pretty much sums up um, the kind of introductory material that we can offer by talking about the objects that we have here and how they fed into um, both the mythology and um, how Eleanor Elkins Widener and ASW Rosenbach's grief fed into um, this monumental project uh, to memorialize Harry um and so those are the sort of two sides of this that that we can trace here in in our artifacts um and so um you know i hope that people listening who are interested in this topic will um if they have an interest in following through on this will come and consult with some of the bo- the books and the manuscript material the letters the telegrams um that we have in our collection um that surrounds this um we also um from time to time Uh, hold a a hands-on experience looking at these in our Behind the Bookcase tours, um, one of them dedicated to the story of the Titanic and its relationship to the Rosenbach.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rosenbach podcast. Check back soon for another glimpse into the Rosenbach's remarkable collection of rare books, manuscripts, art, and artifacts, and for more fascinating conversations about history, literature, and culture. The Titanic saga will continue on upcoming episodes of the Rosenbach podcast. We'll visit the Widener Memorial Library at Harvard University to speak with Leslie A. Morris, the Gore Vidal Curator of Modern Books and Manuscripts at Harvard's Houghton Library, who formerly worked at the Rosenbach and is an expert in the Widener-Rosenbach story. Ms. Morris is immersed in the Widener collection and will help us understand the process by which the Widener Memorial Library came into existence. Joining me and Leslie for this conversation will be Dr. Susan D. Block and Dr. Sue E. Morris of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Cancer Center, both of whom are experts in the fields of grief, bereavement, and palliative care. They will offer a scientific perspective on the grief process Eleanor Elkins-Widener experienced, how constructing the Widener Memorial Library and finishing her son's collection helped her heal, and what Mrs. Widener's experiences can teach us about grief and recovery today. You won't want to miss this unique conversation. To learn more about the Rosenbach, visit Rosenbach.org. We host a variety of on-site and online events and public programs, and always welcome questions from listeners about how to use our collections. Judy Gustin and I offer a behind-the-bookcase hands-on tour on-site at the Rosenbach, in which visitors can view and even handle our artifacts connected to the Titanic, so keep an eye on the website for when the tour is next offered. Also bear in mind that our Titanic holdings are always accessible to researchers who make a free appointment to visit our reading room. The Rosenbach's community reaches all around the globe, brought together by our love for history, rare books, manuscripts, and the arts. I hope you'll consider supporting the Rosenbach and this podcast by becoming a member today. It's one of the best ways to help us with projects like this. Memberships start at just $55 and give you access to everything we have to offer online and in person. Thank you for your support. If you enjoy the introductory and concluding music featured on the podcast, which was composed and performed by Rosenbach Board of Directors member Yolanda Wisher and her band, The Afroweeders, and was recorded at WRTI 90.1 in Philadelphia for NPR live sessions, visit wrti.org to learn more. Also, please consider purchasing Yolanda Wisher's new album. Just visit rosenbach.org for information. The Rosenbach Podcast is supported by a grant from the Evelyn Toll Family Foundation. Thanks again, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of the Rosenback Podcast.